On behalf of CME Outfitters, welcome to today's case. It's a CMEO briefcase entitled Missed Opportunities in Immune-Related, or IRAE, Management, Tips for the Non-Oncology Pharmacist. This is supported by an independent educational grant from Merck Sharp and Domi. My name is Dr. Carrie Reynolds. I practice at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, and there I direct the Severe Immunotherapy Complications Service. And I am here with my colleague, Dr. McPherson. Hello, my name is Jordan McPherson. I work at Huntsman Cancer Hospital in Salt Lake City, Utah, as an oncology clinical pharmacist, and I'm so glad to be here today. And oncologists and pharmacists work so closely together. And so we're happy to present this to you today. And our main learning objective is to be able, at the end of this, for you to feel comfortable to evaluate patients for IRAE development in non-oncology settings. We have two audience response questions. So first, off the bat, which of the following best describes the effect of immune checkpoint inhibitors on the immune system in oncology care? And the second audience response question is, which of the following is most likely the cause of severe fatigue in a patient receiving treatment with single agent immune checkpoint inhibitor for non-small cell lung cancer? And to frame the responses, if we take a step back and think about the last decade in oncology care, we wanted to show you this slide showing that immune checkpoint inhibitors are truly a breakthrough. So what does this slide show us? Well, the very first immune checkpoint inhibitor was approved in 2011. It was ipilimumab, and it was approved for advanced metastatic melanoma. Since that time, all of these dots actually represent FDA approvals. And this slide is not so that you can see the individual detail, but just to take a step back and see that there are now over 75 FDA approved indications. In fact, we have 10 of these agents, 10 in the class of immune checkpoint inhibitors are approved, and they're approved in over 20 types of cancer. So this is a very widely used therapy. But I wanted to take us back to Immunology 101, just so that you can see how these drugs work, which might explain the adverse event profile that we see. So many times a day, our immune system is trying to decide between self and non-self. And so shown here in this diagram, there's a green cell that's called an antigen presenting cell. And this little blue ball is an antigen presented up on a major histocompatibility complex molecule to the T cell receptor of this bluish purplish T cell. And that is signal one, but our immune system is tightly regulated. So that signal one does not activate the immune system. Instead, we must have a co-stimulatory signal or a second signal for the immune system to be off to the races. Then the T cell can start to proliferate, secrete cytokines, start to migrate through the tissues, really looking for more antigen to clear. But remarkably, in order to prevent autoinflammatory conditions or immune system overactivation, we have breaks on the immune system. These breaks are critical. And soon CTLA-4 is one of these breaks that is in this intracellular vessel. It comes to the surface and it can actually outcompete that co-stimulatory signal. So this break on the immune system can start to deactivate it. That is the first checkpoint. There are multiple other checkpoints in the periphery shown here as well. And that is 
PD-1 on T cells, so programmed cell death one, or it's ligand. The issue is that cancer can co-opt the immune system. And so we wanted to take off of these breaks so that the adaptive arm of the immune system could recognize cancer. And that's why these monoclonal antibodies were designed against the checkpoints and are called immune checkpoint inhibitors. There are two that are approved against CTLA-4, as you can see there, and there are several approved against PDL one PD-1, or even the newest checkpoint, LAG-3. So these drugs are a completely new class of therapy that have come over the scene over the last decade, and they are different than chemotherapy. Chemotherapy we knew very well in oncology for, because of decades of use, but they have specific differences. So chemo, the bullets on the left represent chemotherapy, and the bullets on the right, immunotherapy. So how are they different? Well, chemotherapy had this direct anti-cancer effect right on the cell whereas immunotherapy has an indirect effect because it activates the immune system, then the adaptive arm of the immune system can recognize the cancer. Chemotherapy, unfortunately, in our very advanced and metastatic cases, often has a short response before the cancer becomes able to progress again. Whereas immunotherapy in a subset of patients, the real home run here is that there's this durable response that is possible in a subset of these patients. Chemotherapy, we knew what adverse events were associated with chemotherapy after having so much experience over decades, and it's pretty predictable. We also know that often many of them improve before the next cycle of chemotherapy. But immunotherapy is different. It does have an unpredictable adverse event profile. It often, if you're going to have an adverse event, happens in the first three to six months. However, it has been reported that immune-related adverse events can happen up to over three years after the start of immune checkpoint inhibitor. So often, it's when those in that six-month window, but not always. For chemo, nausea, and vomiting were very common. Extreme fatigue was common. With immunotherapy, a lot of these are less common, and actually, they tend to be quite well-tolerated drugs. For chemotherapy, importantly, the drug kind of stops working after the chemotherapy has stopped. Whereas immunotherapy, if you can get the immune system to be activated, the responses can actually continue even though the drug is discontinued. Importantly, though, that immune system is still activated, and so immune-related adverse events can also happen after the drug is started, stopped. So chemotherapy, the hallmark that we've all learned is that it's immunosuppressive whereas immunotherapy is a completely different paradigm shift. It's immune activating. So Jordan, what happens or how do you think through these two categories and how does it help you when you think about the patient in front of you? Well, when I think of you know what we're taught in pharmacy school and other places, we often think of chemotherapy as being this roller coaster ride, and it's very predictable. And you have timeframes of you know neutropenic nadirs and things like that, where the timeline is is very predictable. But with immunotherapy, there's this unpredictability that's kind of put into the game where we don't know what's going to happen. We we know that of things that could happen due to this immune overactivation, but it's not always going to happen the same way. And so it's a different paradigm when you have to prepare a patient for that unpredictability and really be prepared yourself. And so that leads us to really discussing these immune-related adverse events. And this is a specific class of side effects that are caused by immune checkpoint inhibitors. And we, we call them IRAEs for short. 
But the kind of crux of all this is that immune overactivation. We want that immune overactivation against the cancer, um, but it's not specific in a sense. It also can cause overactivation against healthy tissues and organs. And so the way this manifests, manifests most commonly is inflammatory. And so what you'll see is that across the board, most of these disorders and conditions uh, end in the suffix itis, indicating an inflammatory condition. And these often will mimic autoimmune diseases that happen naturally. So a patient may have joint pain that mimics rheumatoid arthritis. They may have loose stools that mimics Crohn's disease, all due to that immune overactivation against healthy tissue. And the most key thing to note here is that any organ in the body can be inflamed. And so really anything is fair game. Any organ, if it could have a naturally occurring autoimmune disorder, um, it's possible that you could have an IRAE in that organ system. And so considering those possibilities is so important and making sure that a patient is aware that that could happen is, is so vital. And so I, I think, you know, as we're thinking through how we manage these, how we, we become aware of these, the severity could be very mild. You know, some patients, they just have rash. We push through with creams and other things like that to help manage those, but it could be life-threatening. They could have severe immune-related adverse events that manifest in places like the colon, where diarrhea could progress to severe dehydration and, and ultimately death. And so we really need to take these things seriously um, because they, they, they span the spectrum. And so the main um, therapy for these immune-related adverse events is corticosteroids and different formulations and, and areas. We often use oral, but we do use topical corticosteroids as well. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, corticosteroids are not always the answer, but they're often the answer. So as we talk about the grading and frequency of these, these IRAEs, um, the, I think the most important thing to know when you're thinking about a patient that could be having an IRAE is, well, what is the symptom and how bad is it? And you've got to start there because if you don't know what the symptom is and you know, leading to the potential condition and you don't know how bad it is, you don't have what you need to determine what, what you need to do to work it up or treat it. And so one of the best things I know to do is to do a quick Google search for something called CTCAE. This is a criteria that's used in clinical trials to grade different adverse events. It's what's uh, been used to grade these IRAEs in multiple guideline sets. But I Google that on a daily basis to try to grade a symptom to figure out how bad that symptom is and whether or not it warrants further workup or a different management. And so I'll Google that and look through and the, these tables, the one example that we have here for diarrhea, include different criteria for how to grade a different symptom or adverse event. With grade one in this example with diarrhea being less than four stools above baseline, grade two being four to six above baseline, grade three being more than seven, along with other uh, more high acuity events that have occurred. And so we, we grade based on that severity. Grade one and two IRAEs warrant generally ambulatory workup and management in either the primary care or the urgent care settings, whereas grade three or four in general will often require either ER workup or hospitalization for management. Now, these IRAEs vary in terms of their frequency. And if you're asking how, how likely it is for a patient to experience an IRAE with an ICI, it can be very unlikely 
but it can be extremely likely. And it all depends on what therapy you're on. In, in terms of an any grade IRAE or adverse event in general, they're very common. We have patients even on PD-1 therapy alone that experience, you know, three-fourths of them will experience any grade AE, um, but only 14% have a severe AE that we need to worry about. This can, though, increase up to combination therapy where we have PD-1 and CTLA-4 inhibitors used in combination where you're banking on one in two patients having a severe IRAE that needs to be managed during therapy. So you better bet I'm educating all of my patients on what to look for because the likelihood is that they are going to need our help at some point. And so the important thing to note here is that we need to recognize what the symptom is, how bad it is, and then go to the appropriate guideline reference to get management recommendations. And so these management guidelines uh, have been created by different consensus guideline panels. Um, ESMO has one, NCCN has one, ASCO has one, and SITC has one. These all differ in, in various ways. But the key things to know here are that they all will help with grading. So if, even if you don't Google CTCAE, you can get grading from the guidelines. Um, they all also will help with workups. So they can suggest different labs and different other tests that can be done to try to evaluate an IRAE. And most importantly, they can guide you on what the most appropriate management is for that IRAE. And so, yes, you may not be working in an oncology setting, but I think it's good to be aware of and have in your back pocket these guidelines, just in case you come across a patient that needs to be evaluated or worked up for an IRAE. Because I guarantee you, with more than one in three patients with cancer getting an ICI, you're going to see someone with these agents at some point during your practice. So now going to our patient case, this is Nathan, who is a 78-year-old man who's seen at his primary care clinic today for fatigue for the past two to three weeks. He has a past medical history of COPD, hypertension, osteoarthritis, and gout, and a history of metastatic melanoma for which he's completed treatment three months ago. His current medication list is seen here with general therapies for all of the conditions we mentioned. And the patient states, I feel tired all the time. It's gotten worse over the past two to three weeks. Is this a side effect from any of my medications? And so you're consulted as part of his fatigue evaluation to review his medication list and see if there's any medication uh, that could be uh, attributed or this fatigue could be attributed to any of these medications. Lisinopril, budesonide from Monterol, and ibuprofen or colchicine. And so as we're thinking through this case, I'd like you to think back to before you started listening to Carrie and I today, did you consider an IRAE as a possible cause of fatigue in a patient with a history of malignancy prior to this activity? And Carrie, as we think through this uh, activity and, and think through this case, uh, what are some of the most important aspects of his history that we should really note here? Um, you know, knowing what we know, based on this limited information, what should we um, really kind of maybe dig a little bit more for uh, into and, and kind of figure out more information before we go forward? What do you think? Yeah, I think it's such a good question because you come across these patients and we heard that he had a history of malignancy. We heard melanoma, but we didn't know exactly what he was treated with. And I think that is the key aspect now because we have these newer treatments or, or treatments that have different mechanism of action. And so I really feel like the relevant aspects of Nathan's history are what was he treated for when it comes to his cancer? 
when was he given those those agents as well? So I think those are, are two key aspects that we just have to know right off the bat that help us then guide the workup and treatment for what might be causing his presentation. Right, because if he had received chemotherapy and it was three months ago, maybe I'm not as concerned with that being a relevant piece of information, but if it's ICI therapy, that is still very relevant. You know, that immune overactivation persists beyond the actual infusion of the drug, if you will. And so I think that that needs to be still a part of the conversation if it was an ICI. And so if yeah, I were and to you tell know, with you- brain, yeah. With metastatic melanoma and brain mets, actually, we can often use two therapies. So we may use a CTLA-4 and a PD-1 inhibitor together in combination. And so that's also relevant because just like you said a couple of slides ago, you said with the combination therapy, there's really a higher incidence of possible immune-related adverse events that we have to think about. Exactly. Yeah. So let's say- Let's play the game if this patient had had brain metastasis and was on combination of their immunotherapy and you found that out with nivolumab and ipilimumab. How does that change our kind of decision making or workup process if you know that? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And I think the key aspect is almost shown in, in this next slide here because it changes. If I knew that he was on two dual immune checkpoint inhibitors, I know that 50% of those cases could have a potential grade three or higher adverse event. So it's almost like my differential went now from head to toe of what that fatigue might be caused by. And so when we think about this, it, patient can have a single complaint or it can be pretty nonspecific, but we just have to have these conditions on our radar. So the differential becomes pretty broad. So we think about the most common actually is endocrinopathies. So the endocrinopathies that are possible can be anything from inflammation of the pituitary gland, which controls the adrenal and the thyroid access in addition to others. It could be the thyroid gland itself. It can be type one diabetes or adrenal insufficiency. So all of those conditions have to be on our list. In addition, we kind of have to broaden that out a bit more because neurotoxicity, sometimes patients can, can be weak and really report more fatigue. And so we have to think about neurological. Sometimes they can be a little bit more dysnic, but they call it fatigue. And so we have to think, is it inflammation of say the lungs? Are there any other pulmonary symptoms? Inflammation of the heart, like a myocarditis can have a simple presentation like profound fatigue or even if there's inflammation of the kidneys causing nephritis or inflammation of the liver causing hepatitis, or if say they were having a hemolytic anemia because the immune system can actually activate and start destroying the red blood cells causing a hemolysis. So basically it's kind of, we take a step back, we think head to toe, we make sure we've covered the bases. But in this case, the most common um, symptoms that, that do cause this are actually the endocrine symptoms. But it's that, IRE identification that is key. So it's this early identification, as you can see here on the slide, that is really key to the timely workup and treatment. Because if you know it's a possibility, you can go right back to those guidelines you showed us, Jordan, to find out what does the workup really need to look like and what does the management need to look like. And then importantly, again, it's not so clear for the predictable timeline. So you just have to have a high suspicion Often it's within the first several months after the start of immune checkpoint inhibitor, but it can be much later than that. And really importantly, the patient could have stopped therapy three months ago and actually could still be presenting with the immune-related adverse event. 
So over on the right, we kind of like this diagram because it says something as simple as fatigue, it's common, it's a non-specific complaint in primary care, but that pharmacist is so critical to understand that the patient has been on immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy. We know that the risk can continue and that it can be a potential indicator of one or more um, adverse events. And so you were talking about those guidelines and you said there are really a couple buckets of treatment. And I think that's kind of a key take home pearl is that the buckets of treatment for immune related adverse events, if it is non-endocrine, if it is say a myositis, inflammation of the muscle or inflammation of the liver, the important part is you always have to rule out the alternative etiologies. But if it is truly most likely an immune related adverse event, sometimes that's even a biopsy that shows us that it is. Then we determine the severity with that CTCAE, just like you said. And for grade one, that means very mild. And we can actually often keep treating with our immune checkpoint inhibitor, but we just have to address the supportive care therapy along with whatever complaint that they have. But when we get into grade two, that's when we're really starting to use the corticosteroids. And the guidelines range for the non-endocrine IREs, but often they're between 0.5 and 1 mg per kg of steroids. So for a 70 kilogram gentleman, that would be 70 milligrams a day of the prednisone. Grade three and four is often when they're hospitalized um, and given IV steroids, a lot of IV solumedrol for these patients. And then if they don't improve within 48 to 72 hours, we have to think about second line immunosuppression. But the framework here is really grade one or mild, you can keep going with our immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy. Grade two, we have to start thinking about oral steroids for non-endocrine IREs. And grade three or four are more the more serious and often have to have IV. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, as we move into thinking about what other things that are that are endocrine related would be um, for, for consideration, I think there's big differences in how endocrine immune related adverse events behave versus the way that non-endocrine IREs behave. And one of the big key things in my mind is the fact that, you know, a lot of these cases of colitis, pneumonitis, hepatitis, they're all reversible. They're things that we treat for a short period of time with these steroids, like you mentioned, half a mg per kilo or to one of steroids. Prednisone usually is what's used. And then we taper off those, right, over a span of time, and they kind of the immune system snaps out of it, and we can kind of go back to normal. With the endocrine side of things, the difference here is that often these glands are very sensitive, they stop working well, they burn out, they stop functioning and releasing the hormone that the body is used to making. And so, you know, one of the key differences with endocrinopathies is that we're more focused on the replacement of the hormone in these situations. And so the majority of the things that I deal with on a daily basis are IRAEs. And this is very different. We're not going to be starting steroids in these cases, because this is not something that we would consider reversible. Um, we are going to identify the hormone that needs to be replaced. And so these are common issues. I, I, I don't want anyone to think that they're not common. You know, hearing that case, that is a very common scenario that we see in the clinic is that somebody presents with, man, I just got horrible fatigue, even months after ICI therapy. And you got to think, is this an endocrine thing? Is this something where there's a hormone deficiency that we can fix? And that's, that's really the key. And so these affect about one in 10 patients who have received ICI therapy based on a meta-analysis that was published a few years back. Um, and they're not treatment limiting. So as long as a patient is stable enough, we can continue on ICI therapy as long as they're not acutely ill and push through that because we're not going to be trying to use steroids to reverse the IRAE in this instance. 
the, again, replacement is key. So, you know, this patient case we went over, I think the most appropriate thing would be to think through what endocrine tests, what endocrine panel can we uh, uh, assess to determine what, if there is a hormone deficiency of some kind, in order to know how to treat it, what to replace. The timeline of endocrine IRAEs is much more abbreviated than that of naturally occurring endocrinopathies, including things like Hashimoto's disease. And so when we think about somebody that develops thyroiditis, that timeline is compressed such that a patient could transition from thyroiditis, where they're slightly overactive in their, hyper, in their hyperthyroid state, but not causing a lot of symptoms, all of a sudden to transitioning within 30 days or so to a hypothyroid state. So it is different from naturally occurring autoimmune disease, much more compressed timeline, not as severe on the hyperthyroid side, but definitely needing our intervention on the short time frame after they become hypothyroid to replace that thyroid hormone. These do, in terms of frequency, differ by what type of therapy the patient received. So the fact that our patient had received combination ICI therapy with both CTLA-4 and PD-1 therapy means that both hypophysitis and thyroiditis are common, um, even though by far the most common IRAE uh, that's related to endocrinopathies is thyroiditis. And so leading ultimately after that thyroid burns out to a primary hypothyroidism that we need to replace. And so getting back to our case, our patient Nathan did show an elevated TSH with a low T4. So he had already had his his uh, thyroid burnout, it has now progressed to primary hypothyroidism. So he was contacted by the clinic staff and prescribed levothyroxine 50 micrograms daily and ordered follow-up thyroid studies in six weeks, which is entirely appropriate. What additional intervention would be appropriate in the setting of new onset hypothyroidism with a history of ICI treatment? So as we're thinking through this case, Carrie, are there thoughts that you have on, you know, this, this patient's been started on initial treatment. Um, he has proven hypothyroidism. They're going to be following up uh, in six weeks. Uh, wh what do you think would be the most appropriate thing to do at this time? Yeah, we do really think that referral to the oncologist or making sure that the oncologist is aware of any of the immune-related adverse events that is associated with the immune checkpoint inhibitor is, is really key. And what's interesting in a lot of these hypothyroidism cases is we have to do full dose replacement because there has been so much infiltration of the thyroid that it is really no longer functioning. And so we think more along the lines of a dose about 1.6 mics per milligram. So depending on his weight, that's an important consideration too, is that you really need full dose replacement right off the bat. And, and we often typically see these patients sooner than say just six weeks for follow-up for the TSH because of the fact we wanna take a step back. If the patient has had one immune-related adverse event, it would be a missed opportunity if we didn't think about, do they have any other symptoms that are associated with inflammation of other organs that might be treated differently? Because just like you said, you know, with the thyroid, we replaced the hormone, but what if there was one that was a non-endocrine IRAE that would be managed differently? So the key part is really recognition, appropriate full dose treatment, and then making sure that we look for more than one and follow them pretty closely. Right. And I do know, and I think in this case, maybe there's an angle where you might, you know, one might recognize that he's a 
78 year old, he's an older gentleman that, you know, perhaps maybe you could start a little bit lower than you would normally where you, you know, start with full dose. And so I think maybe in this case, 50 micrograms daily is, is appropriate to start out with, whereas with the majority of patients, you're going to be going to full thyroid burnout and they're going to need full dosing with the 1.6 mics per kilo. Um, so yeah, that, that's fantastic. But I think that, you know, in terms of thinking, okay, I'm not an oncology what's my role in this is I think that getting that initial therapy started and passing that off, because this is most likely an immune toxicity with that shorter time frame of onset than we would normally expect in an autoimmune disease state, I think is totally appropriate, just like you said. So it does beg you know, the question, well, what, what is the role of pharmacists in managing IRAEs? I can speak for myself where on a daily basis, this is what I, I get kicks and giggles with. I, I spend, you know, a ton of time on with IRAE management, but what about you? You know, what, what's your role in all this? And I think that there's an aspect where a lot of us could say, not my job, you know, this isn't my thing to, to be aware of. This isn't my job to manage but we really, I, I want to deliver the message to you. We rely on everyone in every setting to identify these things because of that unpredictability. We need patients in any setting and providers specifically to be able to identify these things wherever they occur because patients will be showing up at the retail pharmacy, at the clinic, at the ER, wherever have you, inpatient setting. And you need to know that if patients have an ICI therapy, that a possibility for any, any symptom or adverse event that's happening could be an IRAE. So prevention you know, and anticip anticipation really kind of goes to this point. There's a great article written a few years back by Medina and colleagues that goes over this role and, and kind of different aspects of, of areas of care um, where you should be aware that you could make a difference. And that identification is so key because without identification, we don't start treatment. And that delay leads to this immune overactivation that gets to the point where it's hard to hard to reverse the train, if you will, if we've gone too far down the track. And so there are um, resources available that you need to be aware of. The guidelines are one. But another aspect is a freely available patient education document um, that is available from HOPA. And I, I just want to refer you to that because it's something that I find that's a valuable resource. Um, that you can use to educate patients if they haven't been made aware that they could have an IRAE, it's great to have on hand, just in case you need to go and walk patients through what is happening with them and why they are experiencing a certain event. I'm going to turn it back over to Carrie to go over our SMART goals for the session today. Yeah, and I thought what you said is so important. I mean, if people, you know, we're trying to educate patients, pharmacists, any frontline person that we're seeing because of the fact that if you are aware that chemotherapy was immunosuppressed and, and might cause things like febrile neutropenia, this is just the new age of cancer care. And so now we have to realize that with immune checkpoint inhibitor, it's, it's immune activated and it can cause auto-inflammatory or autoimmune-like conditions. So this is um, a partnership and we value so much our pharmacists on the team at our own institution. Uh, and I'm sure you do at yours as well. So for the SMART goals that we were hoping to accomplish, to really identify the current and previous treatment with an immune checkpoint inhibitor, right? You don't even just have to be on it now, but it could have been several months ago and still and stopped. It's still a risk factor for immune-related adverse events. Two, we're hopeful that you remember that figure of the body, meaning the immune-related adverse event can affect nearly every organ system, so we just have to be aware. 
And then three, including the immune-related adverse events in the differential diagnosis for patients presenting with nonspecific symptoms is important. Of course, that fatigue could still be anything from their disease or insomnia or depression, other things that are always on the list, but we have to add these immune-related conditions. So we are so excited that you joined us for this session. There are actually several other CMEO briefcases in the same series about immune-related adverse events. There's also additional resources that can be found at cmeoutfitters.com that you can see here for their oncology education hub and their virtual education hub. They can be resources for you, for your team members, for your patients. And to receive credit, just have to complete the post-test and evaluation online. And we are so thankful that you joined today. And I am thankful to you, Jordan, for being my partner in this, in this series. Thank you. Thank you, Carrie. It was great talking to you.